We are in the second part of a three-part series uh, through Lent, and the, the theme of this series is to be glorified. Uh, we are looking at John chapter 17, and in particular this chapter, the entire chapter is a prayer that Jesus prays to his Father. It's interesting, the location of this uh, prayer and this passage is really in between two passages that we're very familiar with at this time of year through Lent and through Easter. Of course, because just before these words, Jesus is in the upper room, and he's with his disciples, and he's communing with them, and he's talking to them about what is about to happen. And of course, as we celebrate every week here at Forest Brook, he also takes the bread and he breaks it and he shares it with them and he shares the wine and he tells them to do this and he tells you and I to do this in remembrance of him and his sacrifice as he walks the disciples through this. And then it seems that that story then jumps to the Garden of Gethsemane where we read of Jesus being in prayer, but we read of him being in agony in this prayer. We say that his sweat was like drops of blood. Perhaps he was reflecting on what was coming, the week that was ahead, the suffering, the tragedy, the humiliation, the mocking, and ultimately the physical death on a cross. But more so, he was reflecting on what was, was about to happen. This pure, righteous God was going to be weighed down by the weight of the sins of the world be separated from his father until he rose again in that agony. But in between those two stories that we agonize over ourselves and we celebrate on Easter morning with his resurrection is this prayer. It is not unusual in the New Testament to read that Jesus is in prayer and in communion with his father. What is unusual about this prayer is that he prays it out loud. It is the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus speaking out loud. Was he just in the mood? Or perhaps he wanted his disciples to hear these words and his disciples of today, you and I, to also hear these words. Last week, Brian kicked off this series and did a fantastic job in telling us the, the structure and the opening of the prayer. And he talked about this to be glorified, which is the theme and which is the beginning of this prayer that Jesus talks about being glorified. And he pointed out the difference between our view of glory. He, said, he, he brought images of what we would think would be glory, be very beautiful. He had images of sunsets and stained glass and the like. But he said in Jesus' words, in God's domain, the ultimate glory is what was represented and represented on that cross. The ultimate, gory, the ultimate glory would be that sacrifice. This week, we're looking at verses 11 through 19. As Jesus continues through this prayer, these particular verses, he's praying to his, about his disciples, to his disciples. His disciples who were around him, yes, for sure. But he's also praying for his disciples that are in this room today, for his disciples of today. We're going to work through these verses, and as we do so, the, ver the, the words are going to be behind me, but if you do have your Bible and you want to turn to chapter, John chapter 17, 
verse 11, please do so. As I was preparing for this, uh, and you can see my Bible's been uh, through a few miles, uh, as I was preparing for this, I was very glad we'd pick John chapter 17, because John chapter 18, if you can see this in my Bible, <laughs> ran into some, I think, sticky Sunday school crafts some 20, 25 years ago or 30 years ago, uh, and there are parts missing. So I'm, again, in Jesus' way, he asked me to speak on 17. Let's, uh, let's begin. I'm going to go through the verses. There's really three logical elements to these verses as Jesus prays for his disciples. But let's look at these in three parts. First, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12, and I'll read through them, and then we, we will explore them a little further. He prays, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, they his disciples, are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. And of course, in that last part of that tw uh, verse 12, he's talking about Judas. And, and Jesus is saying, God, I pray that you would protect them in my name, in the name that you gave me, the Savior, the, salvation, who, the one who is to redeem the world to you. I pray that you will protect them, just as I've protected them while I'm here. Now, the years of ministry that the disciples had with Jesus were probably not easy. They had a lot of rough road to walk. They met with a lot of resistance. There was a lot of physical danger. It was probably hard work. But Jesus is saying, yes, I protected him from that. But more so, I protected him from the evil one. The evil one who did not want us to be here, who did not want these disciples to take root in the news that I have come to save the world. I have protected him in your name. It's an interesting, as we read these verses, Again, the, myst the, minist the mystery of the Trinity, that Jesus would be praying to his Father. And someday it will be revealed to us as we sit at his feet, all, how all that, the three Godhead and one, would be revealed to us. But Jesus is in communion with his Father, and he says, let us protect them. Let us protect them from the evil one. To continue in the life, they, they remain here to continue in the life that we have chosen for them in my name. Extremely powerful words. How many times have we prayed and said, and we, we finish our prayer by calling on Jesus, and in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. We have our Redeemer praying to his Father for you and I and for his disciples sitting there at the time, saying, in my name, protect them. We should be comforted, very comforted in those words. But there's another theme in these two verses, and he says, I pray that they be one, just as we are one. He's setting a very high bar. He's saying, just as we are one, just as the Trinity is one, 
I'm calling that my disciples would be one. Protect them. Keep them together. Don't let the evil one pull them apart and send them astray. Let them be one. Robert, next week, as he wraps up this series and looks at the end of this prayer, is going to talk more about that. There's much more to come in those verses. But in those words, I want to leave you with this one image. It's from A.W. Tozer, and I'm going to paraphrase and add some words. So forgive me if you know the exact words of Tozer, uh, but you'll recognize them in what I say. He has this example, and he says, imagine a hundred pianos. Imagine we're going to tune a hundred pianos, and we're going to do so by lining them up. We're going to tune the second piano to the first piano. And we're going to tune the third piano to the second one, and the fourth to the third one, and so on, and so on, and so on. Just like you and I, the pianos are all different. Some are grand pianos, some are electric pianos, some are stand-up, some are 120 years old, some are, have just been uncreated and never been tuned. Completely different. What do you think you get when you get to, I don't know, pick it, piano number 67 compared to piano number one? Are they perfectly in tune? I don't think so. But Tozer says, but imagine all those pianos, all 100 of them, are tuned to one tuning fork. Are they going to be in tune? You bet. Imagine everybody focused on our purpose, our eyes on God. Will his disciples be scattered? No. Will they be together? Yes. We move on through the verses. Verses 13 through 16. Let me read them for you. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is that my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of. Sanctify them. Oh, sorry, that's verse 17, but I do want to read verse 18. As you send me into the world, I have sent them into the world. The first thing of note when I look at this passage is these words, that they may have the full measure of my joy. Well, we come back to the time that the disciples have known Jesus. The full measure of his joy? We're staying here. He wants us to continue this. He's just finished telling us what he's about to go through. and He's, he's about to be sacrificed on the cross. That's his full measure that we want to have? Wow. But what he's really saying, what he's really praying is that as I send them into the world as I ask them to continue this ministry, to continue the work, that they would have the full measure of my joy. What joy is that? Of knowing what he's about to do. Of knowing that he's about to reconcile the world to God through his sacrifice. That is his joy. And he's praying that we would have that joy as we are his hands and feet in his ministry, as we are his kingdom bearers here on earth. 
that we would experience that joy. Very powerful words. And then we have these words that just seem to be repeating themselves. They are, of the, they are not of this world any more than I am of the world. They are in the world, but they're not of this world. Of course we're not of this world. We have been redeemed. We are from heaven. The Holy Spirit indwells in us. We are kingdom bears. We are not of the evil makings of this world. Powerful words again. And if I may say so, you may not agree with me, but I think as Christians at times, we hide behind these verses. We hide behind verses in Romans 12 too. Do not conform to the ways of the world. Transform yourselves with the renewing of your mind. I'm not of this world. And we create these sort of modern-day monasteries that we hide in. And heaven forbid, this should be one of them for us. We come here, it feels good. We're with our brothers and sisters. We worship. We're in love with God. It feels so good. We're hidden. We don't have to be out there. And there are a lot of communities, evangelical communities, that purposely look for ways to stay out of the world. But that's why in verse 18, Jesus says, just as you sent me, I'm sending them. He's not saying, look, I'm going. I'm going to leave you behind. Hang out. Whatever you want to do, find a closet. You know, stay cool. I'll come back. He's saying, no, you have a purpose. You have a purpose to continue this mission. I'm calling you to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the earth to be the kingdom bearers, to let the world know of God's love and this sacrifice. There's an author, uh, Leonard Sweet, you may be familiar with. Uh, he's a bit edgy. I mean, he's written books entitled such thing as Bad Habits of Jesus. Uh, but really, he's very thoughtful and he's thought-provoking. And he says, in sharing God's word in today's world, in evangelizing today's world, he says there's two great dangers. The first is that we reject culture, that we ignore the reality of the world that the people around us are living in. And he says, if you want the perfect example, Jesus was the perfect example of being where culture was at. Who did he hang out with? He called awful taxpayers down from trees and said, come on down because I'm going to be at your house for dinner. And he met with prostitutes. And he met with just the earth, the, the people of all walks. He didn't ignore culture. Rather, he was right there with them. When we ignore culture, when we reject it, maybe this is why at times people would say that evangelicals are hypocrites because they see us sitting on this lofty perch looking down our noses at them, at least how they perceive us. And they think we're thinking, geez, if you were just as perfect as us, the world would be so much better. Why don't you come and join us? We're going to try to clean you up and make you perfect too. That is what happens when we reject culture. But when we understand the world that people live in, and we can share God's love with them and his words, 
and his gifts that he's given us, then we are doing his work here on earth. Now, Sweet goes on and says, there are other great dangers that we resemble culture, because that's even worse. When we want to be part of it so much that we let culture change us, but we conform to the ways of the world. He says, then the salt has lost its saltiness, and we've lost our way. I love this image and this example, not from Sweet, but from another, I forget where, that I read it. It said it's a little bit like a ship in the ocean. Ship in the ocean, you see pictures, beautiful pictures. I was going to bring one of a beautiful sailboat kind of riding the waves. It's perfect. And that's where it belongs. Ship doesn't belong in a barn. It doesn't belong in dry dock. It belongs in the ocean. But he says, the image goes on to say, now, that's all good, ship in the ocean. But if the ocean is in the ship, that's bad. We are in the world. That is good. We are meant to be. We are sent. It is his purpose for us. But when we let the world in us, when we let the ocean in us, that is bad. And we move on to verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, and they too may be truly sanctified. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Sanctify is one of these words like glory and all these other words that we use. It feels good. What does it really mean? If we had a quiz here to say define sanctify, we'd get a lot of different answers. It means to be set apart. It means to be made holy. It means to be set apart for God's work and his purpose, for his pleasure. If you're wondering how this series makes any sense for it being Lent and how it connects to Easter, I think these words say it all. Jesus is saying, I have sanctified myself. I have been set apart for your work, for your purpose. And he's referring to what's going to happen to him in the next days. The ultimate sacrifice, as Brian said, the glory of dying on the cross. He sanctifies himself so that you and I, his disciples, yeah, all 11 of them, and all of us, he does so so that we too may be set aside for God's pleasure, for God's work, to be made holy. It's an amazing image. As Jesus prays for his disciples, and he lets his disciples hear these words so they may be encouraged, and that you and I may be encouraged. His message is that I've sent him into the world. His message is, God, isolate them. Insulate them, forgive me. God, insulate them. But disciples, don't be isolated. There's a big difference. The words are similar, but you have a purpose. You are in the world to be my hands and feet, to be set apart, to be sanctified. I can't think of a better time to pause for us to have communion 
and think about this passage and think about the passages before as Jesus was in the upper room with them and he was talking about all this to them. And so I'd invite the worship team to come back up and I will come back for a few minutes of conclusion. Some uh, 25 or 26 years ago, I lose track of time, after a very quick and unusual circumstances, it came about uh, that I was put in charge of an entire division of the company that I worked for. And that division was one that was responsible for all the hardware and all the systems that we put into the market. Uh, at that time, systems was a big deal. There was more to running a computer than going like this with your finger. Had these very, very capable people who understood how to just code and make computers work. And so as part of this division, we might have had, I don't know, a thousand of these systems engineers as part of the group. And the skill was all measured. And it was on, measured on a scale of one to five. It was a very big deal to go from two to three and so on. And at the very top of it all, we had what we called consulting systems engineers. And I remember there's a group of them in headquarters uh, and they would come and talk to me from time to time. Either I invited them or candidly they invited themselves to come and tell me what was wrong with the world and how things should be done and this and that. And, uh, you know, I got annoyed with them after a while to be candid with you and frankly I think I'd only I'd started as a systems engineer and I'd only gotten to maybe level two so they didn't think much of me. And they used to talk about the, their, everything that they thought could be done better. And one day I remember this story now. One day I said to them, you know, I know on a scale of one to five, you are a five. There is no doubt. And in fact, some of you are pushing six and the scale is only one to five. I'll give you that. Good for you. That's fantastic. But here's the thing. There are two scales. There's this scale over here, and that's your skill. And there's this scale over here. That's what do you do with it. And they multiply each other. So if you're just here in headquarters, whining and complaining to me day in, day out, I'll give you a one at best. Five times one, I can do that math. You're five out of 25. If you want to do a little bit better, maybe complain less, I'll give you two. But you're still not getting very far. What are you doing with this skill over here? Are you mentoring younger systems engineers? Are you writing briefs? Because back then, no Google stuff was broken. You had to go through catalogs to find somebody who'd written a brief on why that was broken. Are you writing briefs? Are you giving seminars? More importantly, are you out there with our clients, helping them with the morass and mess that they've got that they're trying to make work? Because if you do that every day, I'll give you a five out of five. That's 25 out of 25. Now we're talking. I had actually forgotten that story, but I, I just dreamed it up. I thought about it afterwards, and I had thought of some holes in it, but I liked it at the time. But I thought of that story about a month ago when Andrew Hutchin was on this platform being interviewed about his world and what he did and his week. Some of you who were here and listening to Andrew 
might have wanted to debate this hand here. Healing gifts, gifts of discernment. Some of you might even want to debate whether there is a cessation of gifts in Scripture. I don't think there is, but perhaps that would be the conversation. I never heard anything from Andrew on this hand. Because candidly, every one of us are a five out of five on this hand. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. We have been given the gifts and the fruits of the Spirit. And I don't read anywhere in Scripture that says God only gave half spoonfuls to some of us. We're fives out of fives. Andrew Hodgson is a five out of five without a doubt. What I heard him talk about was this hand. He's a six out of five on this hand. Every day, he's out there talking to people. Is it you? I was praying somebody's hurting. Is it you? No, oh, sorry. On to the next one. And I remember him saying, I much prefer swinging and missing than not swinging at all. Five out of five. And I was preparing for this, and I was thinking of that. I thought, i got to look myself in the mirror. After preparing all these words about how God has sent us, he's calling on God's, his Father's protection on me for the purpose that he has, that I've been sanctified, set aside for God's purpose. How am I doing on this hand? As I move Sunday to Sunday in my modern-day monastery, where I'm nice and protected, I'm in this cocoon that I love. What am I doing? We've been talking through this series about God sightings. And Brian was talking about God sightings. I asked myself, I wonder how many people, whether they know it or they reflect upon it afterwards, had a God sighting because of me. Now, I can't do anything of what Andrew does. I'm introverted. Let's just say he's not. <laughs> I can't do YouTube videos that blow you away. And I can't go around asking people every day if it's you that I had a word from God about. Not all of us are meant to stand at the corner of Young and Dundas on a box telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. But every one of us has the fruits of the Spirit of peace and love and goodness and kindness. And in my week, are people experiencing that? Are people seeing that because I am there? How am I doing on this hand? Just by getting out of the way and letting the Holy Spirit flow through me. Jesus prayed for his disciples, for all 11 of them, and he prayed for you and I. And he said, the world hates you, but I got you. I got you. God is going to put on such a thick armor on you through my prayer. You are completely insulated. But he says, I sent you. I sent you for a reason, to be my hands and feet, to continue my ministry. This is what we've been talking about at Forest Brook now for a long period of time. And we go through this prayer that Jesus prays out loud. And this is exactly what he's praying for us to do. Amen.